Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Peter Hart and with me in my snuggledy home is lovely Gary Bain. Hi, Gary. Hi, Pete. How are you? I'm well, 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 I'm well. What are we doing today? Well, today, Pete, we're going to be looking at the defence of Rourke's Drift of the 22nd to the 23rd of January, 1879. 1879? Yes, 1879. That's because readers, readers, listeners, I wrote 1878 in the notes, didn't I, Gary Barr? You did. A higher power saved me from embarrassment. Who was that higher power? That'd be me. It was you. Or Fred. Or Fred, yeah. He could have sent it telepathically. Now, what was Rourke's Drift? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Well, it was the former trading post of uh, a merchant called James Rourke. I was guessing Rourke. And it was positioned near a drift or a ford uh, on the Buffalo River border. That's called something else now, but we're we're sticking to the the names from then, aren't we? We are. It's easy... (laughs) And it's between the then British colony of Natal and the Zulu territory ruled by King Chetsweo. Ooh, you've been practising that name. I've been practising that. And by 1879, it was a Church of Sweden mission uh, station run by a, a, an Otto Witt or Witt. I don't know how you would say that. No, Swedish. I don't know. No. Now, uh, we, we did the background. This is all part of, uh, well, it's part of the background to the Battle of Isanwana, which we've never learned how to pronounce, and uh, we just glide past it, hoping the re- listeners don't notice. Uh, one of the many things we hope you don't notice. Uh, yes. And we'd like to say before we go on that we're not experts on this period. Uh, neither of us, uh, we like reading about it. We bought lots of books about it, some of which we've read and some we haven't. Uh, but on no way are we experts. We just we're just people who have an interest in this period. That would sum it up, wouldn't it, Gary? Yeah, or, that's fair. Or have you no interest in this? Period? No, no, that's fair. And and uh, we should point out, as with the Islandwana um, podcast, uh, for the quotes we do use uh, the terminology of the day, some of which. Uh, it can be offensive. quite offensive uh, to the modern ear. Yeah, we've taken a couple of unnecessary ones which don't change the context of the quote out. Uh, mm. But uh, there's still a couple left because we're not going to change things. We'll only omit them. Right, uh, so so what's the background? Well, it's the background, as I said. And on the uh, 9th of January, 1879, the British number three, that's the centre column of a sort of uh, uh, multiple attack launched by Lord Chelmsford, they arrived and camped uh, around the drift, didn't they? Uh, they didn't say long, did they? No, on the 11th of January, 
the day after the British Ultimatum to the Zulus expired. Uh, was that ultimatum a fair and cuddly thing, or, or was it sort of naked imperialism and aggression by the British? Well, ultimatums very rarely are fair and cuddly things, are they? Yeah. That's why they're called ultimatums. Is it in, is a clue in the word. Yeah. <laughs> now, that had expired, and the column crossed the river and then encamped on the Zulu bank. It's as if they were uh, engaging in an act of war. Hmm. Now, a small force consisting of B Company, 2nd Battalion, 24th, 2nd Warwickshire Regiment of Foot, which uh, we'll now call the, the 2nd 24th, oh, just for ease. Uh, it was uh, detailed to garrison the post. Which, so that's just one company? Yeah, uh, and the post had been made into a supply depot and hospital. Um, and they were under the command of uh, a, late, a, a Lieutenant Gonville Bromhead. Ooh, who's, uh, remember that name because it's, it's going to be quite important later yeah, on. He sounds a bit posh. Uh, now, uh, on the 19th of January, uh, a small detachment of Number 5 Field Company Royal Engineers arrived, and they're commanded by who? He's the other key figure in the story, isn't he? Who, who's commanding them? Uh, Lieutenant John Chard, uh, Royal Engineers, and he had arrived to repair the pontoon bridge over the Buffalo River. Now, uh, now the next bit we have covered in the podcast, which was, I think, broadcast on the anniversary last year. It was. Uh, in fact, we promised to follow up with Rourke's Drift within a matter of weeks. And we have. And we have. 52 matter- weeks. <laughs> 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 and uh, on, on the 20th of January, Chancellor's Column march off uh, to uh, the Isanwana Rock feature, which is approximately six miles to the east. It's not far. Sometimes I've failed to realise. But it is out of sight, out of sight. Uh, and they leave behind this small garrison. Um, and then more, ad, more more people who are featuring the other podcast arrive because that evening the number two column arrives and that's under Colonel Anthony Durnford, uh, another key figure in the Battle of Isanwana, uh, who arrive, they arrive and camp on the Zulu bank and, and they remain there for the next day. Uh, so that's uh, 20th, 21st. Uh, um, so the, but they don't stay either, do they? No, late on that evening, the 21st January, Durnford's number two column was ordered to Islandwana, as was Chard's number five field company. Now he rides ahead, doesn't he? he, he so essentially, just he rides forward. Uh, and what what happens to him? Well, he does. And and uh, when does he go? Let's get this straight for people. It's the morning of the twenty second, isn't it? Yeah, he he rides ahead, and and on the morning of the twenty second of January, he's gone to clarify his orders. But when he gets to Rorksdrift, he's sent back. Uh, sorry, he was sent back from his landwana to Rourke's Drift uh, because he was ordered to construct the defensive positions. Just in case. Yeah. Because there are, there are, by that time, they're realising there's quite a few Zulus about. Uh, but but the, 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 it's key to note, the Esanwana battle hadn't started then, had it? No, but... Uh, now, now th- there's something crucial here. What, what happens here? Because uh, th- they're not in command. Neither Chard nor uh, uh, Bromhead are in command, are they? Uh, at that point, who's in command? Well, when he gets back, Child sort of mentions that he'd seen large numbers of, of Zulus about. And so uh, the officer in command is a brevet major, Henry Spaulding. Now, he's a staff officer, isn't he? He's yeah. Not, he's not one of the 2nd 24th, and he's not an engineer, but he's a, a staff officer that's been left behind, yeah. Now, he realises that he's, in effect, because of his, his brevet rank, which is like a local rank, 
Um, it, it's a higher rank in the wider army. So he's a army. captain, really. Yeah, so it's a higher rank in the wider army that it might be in his corps or regiment. And, and he realises that he's going to be the senior officer. And, and he decides, quite rightly, I think, that uh, he needs to get off and find the reinforcements that they're expecting to come from Help Makar, which is about 15 miles away, um, where they're expecting one column. And he thinks, because of the number of, of Zulus that have been mentioned, they're going to need two. And, and they need to get a bloody move on. And they need to get a shift on. And why is his rank important to that? Well, because... He outranks... He the, outranks... He outranks the officer at Help... How did you say that, Gary? Help Makar. How do you do this? And then mispronounce Natal. <laughs> Sorry, I just want to throw that in. I might have been talking about Nutella. <laughs> you might. You do like a spot on Nutella. I do. But anyway, now this is... He doesn't feature in our story again, really, because... Uh, but but he's back... He's, there's some muck smeared at him, uh, flung at him, isn't it? And, and yeah, we think it, wrongly, don't we? Yeah, because it looks like, you know, he, he before he left, he, he checks the army list to see who's actually senior out of Lieutenants Chard and Bromhead and then disappears. And, and there is the suggestion that he's sort of run away. And that's not the and case. And that's not the case. He's, he's doing the, the sensible thing. He is getting reinforcements, given the few amount of defenders that are, that are at Rourke's Drift. And he does actually try and bring those two companies forward with him, uh, but but on the way he's met by people who tell him that Rourke's Drift's fallen, so he then goes back to construct a defence, uh, to, to to defend Helmacar. So, in our view, uh, Spalding does no, no wrong. Uh, it's just a bit unfortunate the way things look. No, and as a result, Chard's left in temporary command of the forces at Rourke's Drift. Now, because he, he's senior to, um, to to Bromhead. He is, yeah. Now, he, he, he rides down to the ford where the engineer's camp's located. And here, he meets two survivors from Islandwana who arrive with news of the catastrophic defeat and warning that a Zulu impi was actually fast approaching the Rourke's Drift. And you're going to be Lieutenant John Chard of Number 5 Field Company, Royal Engineers. My attention was called to two horsemen galloping towards us from the director, direction of Isanwana. He couldn't pronounce it either. From their gesticulation and their shouts, when they were near enough to be heard, we saw that something was the matter on taking them over the river. One of them, Lieutenant Adendorf of Lonsdale's regiment, native <laughs> Natal native contingent, was asking if I was an officer. Jumping off his horse, he took me to one side and told me that the camp was in the hands of the Zulus and the army destroyed. That scarcely a man had got away to tell the tale and that probably Lord Chelmsford and the rest of the column had shared the same fate. His companion, a carboneer, confirmed his story. He was naturally very excited and I'm afraid I did not at first quite believe him and intimated that he probably had not remained to see what did occur. So he's flinging mud as well. This is quite common in in all armies, uh, you know. Uh, Now, um, so... Uh, they have a meeting. Now, there's two... Funny enough, Chard wasn't originally that bothered by the... But he, he had become bothered. But they have a meeting, don't they? So Chard, Bromhead, an acting assistant comm- commissary, uh, James Dalton, uh, commissariat and uh, transport... Is that the Army ser- Transport Department? Is that the yeah. Army Service Corps, as, uh, as would as be? As would become, yeah. Uh, they have a meeting. And the key figure here is probably Dalton. Uh, in, in, this, uh, in, in, in one sense, and Chard and Bromhead in the other. They decide, uh, they have to decide whether to retreat themselves to help Makar, don't they? Or to hold Rourke's Drift. Now, what, what, what's in their minds? 
Well, Dalton actually points out, and again, he's an experienced old he's, soldier. He's isn't an it? old soldier, and he points out, and we covered this off in uh, in the podcast about Islandwana, that a small column with carts full of the thirty six hospital patients would be overtaken and massacred in the open by the numerically overwhelming Zulus, and therefore it was agreed to stand and fight at Rourke's Drift. So it's, it's sort of, they wouldn't want to start from here, but having started from there, they haven't really got any option. No, because see. of how slowly they would be moving in those carts. Well, they, those carts would be going at naught miles an hour, essentially, wouldn't they? Hmm. Uh, now, uh, Chard and Bromhead direct the defensive uh, preparations. Uh, and and uh, But again, Dalton, is, is his experience is absolutely vital. But I'm always interested in Chard Bromhead. I had the view, and possibly influenced by a certain film, which we're not really going to mention much, that these were thrusting young officers, if you like. But they're not young officers, are they? They're, uh, how well, they're both in their 30s. And Bromhead, he, he was actually seriously deaf. Pardon? He was seriously deaf not picking you up here too now long. that's a bit of a comment on an army where promotion was based on seniority yeah that they could be considered young because they're not young but and certainly most times the british army they'd be they'd be passed over almost um, for promotion um now they, as we said the, the the practicalities of the defense they're sort of sketched out by the, the charm bromhead but james dalton he's the one who's he's done a field fortification course that was lucky wasn't it and he sets it up so what what does he set up well, he, he puts a defensive perimeter which incorporates the main buildings of the storehouse and the hospital uh, and has that constructed. Uh, a four-foot or even higher wall was made out of 200-pound mealy bags and 100-weight biscuit boxes. Now, I want to make a point here. They were quite lucky in the sense of the stores that they had because both the mealy bags and the biscuit boxes would prove to be ideal for building fortifications and defences. The mealy bags were like sandbags. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just to give us an idea of this, we've got a quote from Private Henry Hawke, 2nd 24th, and you're going to give us this. The mealy bags were good, big, heavy things, weighing about 200 pounds each. And during the fight, many of them were burst open by a sag eyes and bullets. And the mealies, which is Indian corn, uh, were thickly spread about the ground. The biscuit boxes contained ordinary biscuit. They were big square wooden boxes weighing about a hundred weight each. The meat boxes too were very heavy as they contained tin meat. They were smaller than the biscuit boxes. Yeah, so you couldn't push them over. That's the key thing. These are solid. And there's also something else helping. They've got a couple of wagons that they use to fill a, a, the 120 foot gap between the storehouse and the hospital. Because this is. They've got a lot to cover with, you know. It, it, but what what do they do to the buildings? Well, they convert the buildings into sort of mini forts. How? Well, they construct loopholes, which they bash through the outer walls, and the doors they barricaded with furniture. Now, the tents they were collapsed, uh, which is something that didn't happen at, at, at uh, Islamana, I seem to remember, yeah. uh, and left strewn on the ground as a mild embuggerance. To movement for the attackers. Yeah, well, that would. It's just they're, they're just strewn about the place. Now, uh, whilst they are working, there were some unwelcome distractions, and uh, you're going to explain by being Lieutenant John Chard again. Several fugitives from the camp, Assis and Warner, arrived and tried to impress upon us the madness of an attempt to defend the place. Who they were, I do not know, but it is scarcely necessary for me to say that there were, that there were no officers of Her Majesty's army among them. 
They stopped the work very much, it being impossible to prevent the men gathering, getting round them in little groups to hear their story. They proved the truth of their belief in what they said by leaving us to, to our fate. And in the state of mind they were in, I think our little garrison was as well without them. In other words, adding panicking men to a already panicked men to the garrison wasn't helping. In fact, they were a bloody nuisance from start to finish. Now, yeah. somebody else arrived. Uh, uh, when did they arrive? Who, who comes? Well, uh, around uh, 1530s, half past three in the afternoon. Now, we want to make a point about this, that the times are dodgy. There's, there's problems with wristwatches at the, of the time anyway. But also, th- this is an incredible period. And uh, uh, throughout, our timings are approximate. And, and no books agree. No, and particularly when, you know, times when action has started, yeah. it's it's unreliable. But it's around half past three in the afternoon, about 100 uh, Natal native horse arrive under uh, Lieutenant Alfred Henderson. And uh, having retreated in fairly good order from the debacles at uh, Islandwana. Yeah, they hadn't been caught in the, the wings. They, 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 they got away. Uh, and what, what does Chard order them to do? Or what do I as Chard order them to do? I might well, they were ordered to provide a series of vedettes stretching around Raw Street. Yeah, with a picket up on the far side of the Oscarburg. Which now, was what's a, the Oscarburg? Well, that was a large hill that overlooked the station in the uh, it was in the overall direction from which the Zulus were expected to approach. And this is quite close, isn't it? So the the the, the drift sort of nestles underneath it. Uh, so mm. so your defenders of Rourke's drift are, are we going to sum this up? Are, yeah, they're going to consist of right Lieutenant Bromhead's B Company of the Second Twenty Fourth, Lieutenant George Stevenson's. <laughs> George Stevenson. Thank you. <laughs> Company of the Natal Native Contingent. That's about 100 uh, men in that. Lieutenant Henderson's Natal Native Horse Troop. They're the ones we just mentioned. Uh, various hospital uh, patients and walking wounded. I don't know quite how many there were, but I mentioned a figure of 36 earlier. I don't know, but there's a few of them. Uh, some of them are walking wounded, though. It's worth remembering that. Yeah, uh, so Chard posted the British soldiers around the perimeter. That's the mealy bag perimeter and, and the rest of it, yeah. Adding some of the more able patients, yeah, the casuals and civilians, and those of the uh, NNC... Natal native contingent. ...who possessed firearms along the barricade. Now... What could, what could be fatal to, to their hopes of survival, do you think? Well, as is often the case, rum. You mean the British Army, the British soldier can't be trusted with alcohol? Well, something like that. And Lieutenant John Chard goes on to say... There were several casks of rum in the store building and I gave strict orders to Sergeant Windridge, 24th Regiment, who was in charge, acting as issuer of commissariat stores to the troops, that the spirit was not to be touched. The man posted nearest it was to be considered on guard over it and after giving fair warning was to shoot without altercation anyone who tempted to force his post and Sergeant Windridge being there to see that this was carried out oh, they're going to shoot him if they try and get the, the rum yeah you'd have still gone for it <laughs> now water was issued and each man had full pouches and extra ammunition ready at their side yeah because they're just single shot rifles so you need to have the rifle nearby to make it as quick as possible the reloading process lots of rounds close at hand now the rest of the uh, NNC what are they armed with they are mostly with spears, but they also had a few old muskets, and they were posted within the kraal. What's a kraal? 
well, that's in this case, it's an enclosure for sheep or cattle. And that's um, just attached to the, the state, but it's not part of the main defence. It's defenses, not part of the main defence, no. But it is part of the defences, and, and they've put... They, they uh, sound as if they're a bit of uh, an afterthought. Yeah, it, it, it did have a low stone wall, so it did provide some cover, but it obviously was not as, uh, as, as, um, as good as being within the main defences. Now, Sergeant Major James Reynolds, he was the uh, temporary chaplain... Uh, no, sorry. he was the Sergeant Major. Sergeant Major James Collins. <laughs> <coughs> the temporary chaplain, Reverend George Smith. Ah, the perils of commas. the uh, previously mentioned pastor, Otto Witt, or Witt, rode up the 500-foot-high Oscarburg Hill to see what they could see. And they returned at about 1600 on the 22nd of January with the grim news that a large body of Zulus was fording the buffalo to the southeast, and it was no more than five minutes away. God, blimey, this must have been a bit brown trousery time. Uh, It's unbelievable to think of it, really. Who are these? Who is is approaching them? We're not going to go into details. Let's just give an outline. Well, I'd also say that it was at this point that Otto Witt left Rourke's Drift, uh, and that was to be with his family, who lived in an isolated farmhouse which was about 19 miles away. So this isn't the story, again, from that film? No, that, unlike that, the film. And, yeah. and he, had, he did have a daughter, but she was about seven, not not a sort of... Strapping young Strapping young lass, no. Now, you mentioned the approaching Zulu force. Who are they? It's the Undi Corps, which numbered about three to 4,000 in strength. Guestimates, aren't they? They are. It was a mixture of regiments of married men, aged in their 30s and 40s, and a regiment of young, unmarried men. Now, they were commanded by Prince Dabalamanze Mpande, who was the half-brother of King Chetswayo. And this was because the uh, uh, the original designated leader, Nkosi Kamapita, uh, was wounded during the pursuit of British survivors from his landwana. Now they they hadn't been active. Um, they hadn't been in the main fight, had they? they? They'd been the reserve, and they'd they'd swung across the the British left flank, uh, and they were there to cut off the British retreat across the Buffalo via Rourke's Drift, and that's why they were appearing in sight. Um, interesting enough, how far had they marched? Because they didn't march just the six and a half miles from Isinwana. They they marched from where they started that day. <coughs> Yeah, how so far was that? That was roughly 20 miles. Blimey. Now, let's have a look at these. Who are these people? So we've got a mixture of ages, uh, but what are they armed with? Well, they're, they're mostly armed with the Asagai short spear. Um, Stabby thing. Yeah, a few had a bizarre mixture of muskets, antiquated rifles, and also some captured Martini Henrys. Few could hit the uh, proverbial barn door proverbable proverbial <laughs> barn door as they were hampered by the poor quality of local how can you pronounce the commander of the, of the Zulu's name and not well I might not have done oh yeah Oh, you're, you're thinking, I don't know what I'm yeah. talking about. Yeah. Now, they were hampered by the poor quality of locally manufactured powder and bullets. Uh, and, and they also carried shields, which were made of cowhide, which provided good? minimal protection to, against bullets. Now, uh, so, so what was this new commander like? You, you probably want what to say. What was his name? Um, I can't remember. Can you just fill it in for me? Prince Dabulamanzi. Oh, yeah. That's him. He was somewhat impulsive. I think um, rash would be a, a, a better word. And he actually violated King Chechwayo's orders, which were not to cross the border into Natal. Now, I found this interesting because, again, it underlines the fact that whatever the overall case the British may have had, and it was weak 
for, for, for triggering this war. It was weak. Um, but they, they, he's not... The, 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 the King of the Zulus was not... Notice how I dodged his name there. Chichweo. That's it. Uh, he's, he's waging a defensive war, isn't he? He has no intention of invading Natal. Certainly not at this point. Uh, and he does not want to inflame the, the situation by, by, by pushing into, into British Empire territory. Um, is, is he some sort of latter-day no. pacifist? No, no. It's worth mentioning that it was, it's not pacifism. It's, it's sound military and also political common sense. You don't not forgetting poke. the invasion wasn't with the authorisation of the British government. You do, but you don't poke <coughs> the British Empire when you... you you don't tr- trigger an avalanche of response, do you? No. So they're, they're in particular, they're not supposed to attack fortified positions. They're not supposed to cross the the the, um, the, the, the river. They're not supposed to do any of this. And uh, and it's worth noticing that uh, they were definitely not meant to attack this the, the, what has now become a fort at Rourke's Drift. Uh, why is that? Why could well, they'd, they'd they'd overrun the um, the, the, the the British lines at Isanwana? Uh, had they overrun them in a frontal attack? No, I mean the impi was effective when the horns wow. could, inf- which were exactly as they described, they were the, the the flanks, as it were. They could enfold upon flanks and encircle their prey in open ground. And even at Isla Moana, the Zulus had made absolutely no progress. The chest, as they called it, hadn't got anywhere, had it? No, not in frontal attacks. But a fort, even if improvised, doesn't have any open flanks. So. Um so this this attack, well, the, the, it, it's unplanned, un, unsanctioned, uh, and it's it's just a raid across the border on Rourke's Drift. He got overexcited, didn't he? Just a bit. So what happens then? <clears throat> well, the first skirmish occurs at around about sixteen twenty, uh, four twenty p.m. When Lieutenant Henderson's Natal native horse troopers, who are up on Oscarburg, that's that picket, isn't it? Yeah, they briefly engaged the Zulus. Now, they'd already had quite a day of it in escaping from Island Wana, so they were, they were short of ammunition. And quite <laughs> frankly... You, <laughs> imagine them seeing 4,000 uh, Zulus approaching. What do they do? <laughs> well, quite frankly, they're intimidated by the strength of the Zulu forces approaching. And they abandon Henderson, and they make a run for it, heading to help Macar. Does Henderson heroically join the garrison, then? Well, he's not much better. He reports to Chard, and then he follows his men. Very sad. Can, can I just say that that seems to be a sensible officer? He was on a horse, remember? Mm. Um, now, ra- their route triggers the departure of Captain Stevenson's native Natal company, who uh, they abandoned the, the cattle crawl and they also fled the scene. Oh dear, and you're going to be Private Henry Hawk, 2nd 24th. Instantly, the natives, Kaffirs, who had been very useful in making the barricade of wagons, mealy bags, and biscuit boxes around the camp, bolted towards Help Macar. And what was worse, their officer and a European sergeant went with them. To see them deserting like that was too much for some of us, and we fired after them. The sergeant was struck and killed. There do seem to be reports of this, yes. Um, now, Chard, uh, with this departure, he's, he's got less men. Um, what's the point? What is the problem that, 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 that this means? Well, it means he's got to shorten the line defended and, and he gives orders to construct a wall of wooden biscuit boxes right through the middle of the post. Cutting it in half then? Yeah, it meant that the hospital side of the station 
it could be abandoned if the need arose. So how many men are there left in Rourke Strip when the, the Zulus really arrive? And this is, for us, it's a guess. Other people might work it out to the bloody name man, but for us, it's a guesstimate. How many are in Rourke Strip? 155. That's not many against 4,000. No. No. Uh, you're going to be... Uh, uh, one of the first involved for the British is Private Frederick Hitch, 2nd 24th, and you're going to be him. Lieutenant Bromhead asked me to climb to the top of a building, which I believe had been used as a church, and keep a lookout for the enemy. Having got to the top of the building, I could plainly see the Zulus forming up just over the brow of a hill. They're ready to attack, sir! I called out to Lieutenant Bromhead. And I think there are about 4,000 of them! A little fellow named Morris who heard me remarked, Oh, if that's all there are, we can manage that lot all right. Presently, I saw a Zulu, evidently one of their chiefs, who was standing on the summit of a hill, gave the signal by extending his arms, and immediately the whole force commenced to advance on us. Now, timing's really dodgy about this, and there's definite problems about this. It, between it's, 1630 1700, the Zulu, uh, the Zulu vanguard, about 600 men, come charging down the Oscarberg Hill, uh, straight towards the south wall of Rourke's Drift. Uh, with that link, now that wall links the hospital and the the um, the storehouse, doesn't it? It does. And you're going to be Lieutenant John Chard. We open fire on them between five and six hundred yards. At first, a little wild, but only for a short time. A chief on horseback was dropped by Private Dunbar. The men were quite steady, and the Zulus began to fall very thick. However, it did not seem to stop them at all, although they took advantage of the cover and ran stooping with their faces near the ground. It seemed as if nothing would stop them, and they rushed on in spite of their heavy loss to within 550, sorry, 50 yards of the wall, when they were taken in flank by the fire from the end wall of the stall building and met with such a heavy direct fire from the melee wall and the hospital at the same time that they were checked as if by magic. These are the the single-shot Martini Henrys, but if they're given time to reload, they are a deadly and powerful weapon, aren't they? Those bullets just cut through anything, so certainly mean, through cowhide shields. Meanwhile, the main body of the Zulus, they moved around to attack the north wall. Some of those armed with rifles or muskets, they took up positions on the terraced slopes of Oscarburg Hill, and they began a harassing fire. Now, that half fire doesn't kill much, many, does it, or, or wound many, but it does, it does, there's a trickle of casualties from that, isn't there? Yeah, and just to complicate things, another body of Zulus attacked the hospital and the northwestern wall. Those British on the barricades, including Dalton and Bromhead, were soon engaged in fierce hand-to-hand fighting, and you're once more going to be Lieutenant John Chard. A series of desperate assaults were made on the hospital and extending from the hospital as far as the bush reached, but each was most splendidly met and repulsed by our men with a bayonet. Each time as the attack was repulsed by us, the Zulus close to us seemed to vanish in the bush, those some little distance off keeping up a fire all the time. Then, as if moved by a single impulse, they rose up in the bush, as sick as possible, rushing madly up to the wall, some of them being already close to it, seizing where they could the muzzles of our men's rifles or their bayonets and attempting to use their assegais and to get over the wall a rapid a rapid rattle of fire from our rifles stabs with the bayonets and in a few moments the zulus were driven back disappearing in the bush as before and keeping up their fire 
A brief interval and the attack would be again made and repulsed in the same matter, manner. Over and over again this happened. Our fire at the time of these rushes at the Zulus was very rapid. Mr Dalton dropped a man each time he fired his rifle, while Bromhead and myself used our revolvers. I doubt if they hit anything. Wow. <laughs> um, now, I'm interested in this, because what, what's interesting is, why do they use the bayonets? Why do they have to use their bayonets? And the answer is because the Zulus are so close, there's cover quite close. The hospital isn't... That the whole of the thing isn't designed for defence. There's a hill one side and there's rough ground that provides cover and an actual sort of almost low wall. And, and they can get close. And so how- Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. How many shots can they get off with a single-shot rifle? Not many. And that means that then they have to use the bayonet, don't they? Yeah, because even if they get a shot off, they're not then going to be allowed the luxury of time to reload. No, this is not enough. Now, so the fighting, what, how would you describe it? Well, I'd describe it, as you would, I think, as frenetic. I would have described it as frenetic, that's right. That's, uh, that's what corp- you did call it. Corpses mounding up all round a bloody Yeah, all place. in front of the wall. And and I'm going to, to give some, some quotes from... You're going to give us a flavour, aren't Private you? Frederick Hitch once more. So he had been up on the roof, but now he's come down, hasn't he? They were only turned by the good cold steel of our bayonets, for which they had far more respect than for bullets. Then it was load and fire and bayonet just as fast as we could. They would retire and come on again in rushes, each rush being announced by a short war cry. 
This war cry, by the way, was very useful to us. We knew what to expect. One Zulu had got through the barricades into the lager. That's, uh, that's just a, a South African word for a camp. Yeah. Uh, and uh, was in the act of throwing an assegai at Lieutenant Bromhead, whose attention was directed elsewhere. At that moment, my rifle was unloaded and there was no time to reload. I shouted to the Zulu and brought my rifle up to my shoulder as if to fire. My Zulu soldier didn't wait. With a duck of the head and a mighty leap, he bounded over the barricades and made off in a manner worthy of an eminent acrobat. One who had missed our bullets came full tilt at me and seized my bayonet with both his hands. This was quite a new experience for me. There was no time to lose. I had to settle up with him quickly or not at all. For a few seconds we struggled for possession of the rifle. Then I managed to point the barrel at his stomach and fired whilst he still clutched the bayonet. He was a brave fellow. I was just about to shoot down a Zulu in front when the Zulu inside shot me through the right shoulder, carrying away the scapula. What that is. Turning round quickly, Bromhead at once shot down the man who had wounded me. I got up again and attempted to use my rifle, but it was no use. My right arm wouldn't work. So I strapped it into my waist belt to keep it out of the way. Then Bromhead gave me his revolver to use, and with this I think I did as much execution as I had done before I was wounded. Seeing how badly wounded I was, one of my comrades, a man named Deacon, asked me whether he should put me out when it came to the finish. He could see that my strength was fast failing, and that if the devils got through, I would be quite unable to strike a blow for myself. No, I don't think I want any, I said. I had no desire to have my life ended, but it was kind of my friend Deacon to think of me in this way. I often think of you in that way. I often think, Gary, if you're an extremist, just call on me and I'll put you out of your misery. Yeah, that would be a kindness, Pete. It certainly would. Now, um, now uh, so what's Chard thinking? Uh, so, uh, Well, I, as Chard, are thinking that the North Wall couldn't be held against the main strength of Zulu. So at about 1800, so that's about an hour, an hour and a half. We don't really know, do we? He pulled his men back into the yard, abandoning the hospital in the process. So now that he's pulled them back. Um, the, 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 what happens to the people in the hospital? Are there, surely the wounded that, that you can't move are in there. So, so what's, what is happening in the hospital? Well, it's becoming a, a death trap as the loopholes have become somewhat of a liability. If they tried to fire f- uh, from them, uh, then their Martini Henrys would grab that by the Zulus. And once you've fired, you can't fire again you, until you get the, the Martini Henry back, yeah. But if left empty, the Zulus used the loopholes themselves to fire into the rooms. Now, Privates Horrigan, John Williams, Joseph Williams and other patients tried to hold the hospital entrance with rifles and fixed bayonets. Joseph Williams defended a small window and 14 dead Zulus were later counted beneath his window. It's strange how these names are all known, aren't they? They, they really did try and plot what's happened. I, I don't always understand it myself, but, uh, but uh, fully enough, the next phase we're going to talk about, if you want to get the flavour of it, I think you'd advise watching the film. The film does get this quite, quite accurately, I think. Now, uh, so what happens? So the front of the hospital, that's overrun by Zulus, isn't it? So the, the, the British are confined to the back of the hospital. Um, and what does Private John Williams do? I think this is just amazing. 
Well, he uses a pickaxe to hack a hole through the wall, dividing the central room and a corner room in the back of the hospital. Now, this, this is what I mean about watching the film. You can see he does it with a bayonet, I think, in the film. But you can see what, what they're doing by, by creating holes through the walls. And Chard, he had his own perspective. Yeah, I bet this. he did. <laughs> well, I like this. Uh, all this time, the enemy had been attempting to fire the hospital and had at length set fire to its roof and got, and got in at the far end. I had tried to impress upon the men in the hospital the necessity for making a communication right through the building. Unfortunately, this was not done. <laughs> I like that. What does a British officer, a British soldier not like? Hard work. Um, uh, at times, at times. Probably at the time, the men could not see the necessity and doubtless also there was no time to do it. Hmm. Without in the least detracting from the gallant fellows who defended the hospital, I hope I shall not be misunderstood in saying so. So in other words, he's saying, I told them <coughs> to dig up, to get a hole through those bleeding walls, and they didn't do it, bastards. Now, it may have been belated, but John Williams chopped his own passage. just he, A back uh, passage, so to speak. <laughs> Just as he had made a big enough hole to get through... The Zulus renewed their attack on the door of the central room. And even so, Williams managed to drag two bedridden patients out before the door gave way. Ah, it's his real heroism, isn't it? Uh, now, the, the, So he drags the two in, invalids into a corner room. Now, now, who's in that corner room? And this is, this is where the film goes badly wrong in some senses. Uh, who's in there? Well, it was occupied by Private Hook and nine other patients. And I'm going so to Hook be... So Hook, he's a patient as well, isn't he? Yeah, and I'm going to be Private Henry Hook. It was impossible to do anything except fight, and I blazed away as hard as I could. By this time, I was the only defender of my room. Poor old Cole was lying dead outside, and the helpless patient was crying and groaning near me. The Zulus were swarming around us, and there was an extraordinary rattle as the bullets struck the biscuit boxes, and queer thuds as they plumped into the bags of mealies. Then... There were the whiz and rip of the Asagais. We had plenty of ammunition, but we were told to save it, and so we took careful aim at every shot, and hardly a cartridge was wasted. Now, we didn't mention Cole, but Cole had, tried, had lost his nerve and run out and been butchered, uh, as you'd expect. Now, they're still, they're still trapped, so what does John Williams do? He's good at this. Well, he then hacks at the wall to the next room with his pickaxe, and, and whilst he's doing this, Hook is actually holding off the Zulu. So tell us more. What were we to do? We were pinned like rats in a hole. Already the Zulus were fiercely trying to burst in through the doorway. The only way of escape was the wall itself, by making a big hole big enough for a man to crawl through into an adjoining room, and so on, until we got to our inmost entrenchment outside. Williams worked desperately at the wall with the navvy's pick, which I had been using to make some of the loopholes Oh, that's where it came from. All this time, the Zulus were trying to get into the room. The assegais kept whizzing towards us, and one struck me in front of the helmet. But the helmet tilted back under the blow and made the spear lose its power, so that I escaped with a scalp wound, which did not trouble me much. Only one man at a time could get in the, at the door. A big Zulu sprang forward and seized my rifle, but I tore it free and, slipping a cartridge in, I shot him point blank. Time after time the Zulus gripped the muzzle and tried to tear the rifle from my grasp, and time after time I wrenched it back because I had a better grip than they had. All this time Williams was getting uh, the sick through the hole into the next room, all except one, 
a soldier of the 24th named Conley, who could not move because of a broken leg. Watching for my chance, I dashed from the doorway and, grabbing Conley, I pulled him after me through the hole. His leg got broken again, but there was no help for it. As we left the room, the Zulus burst in with furious cries of disappointment and rage. Now, we want to make clear, I mean, Hook's a real hero in this, and, and he's not a drunk, uh, as nope. was portrayed in the thing, and that's definite. So we'll just put that in. That's uh, just a... Uh, it's a plot thing in the film, isn't it? It's not any, anything real. Well, the film is entertainment. Yes. Now, uh, yes, and it is entertaining. Now, uh, so, once again, it's a private John Williams set smashing another hole. <laughs> they should call him Digger Williams, shouldn't they? Um, and uh, and and what else is uh, what else is speeding him up a bit? Well, he's being somewhat encouraged by the realization that the roof's now on fire. Um, once again, Hooks defended. The, the hole behind them, them while Private Waters fired through a loophole. Now, it just takes some time, doesn't it? It does. I mean, this was surprising. After 50-5-0 minutes, the hole was passable. The patients were dragged through, and they were now in the last room of the hospital. Two of the garrison were already there, Private Robert Jones and Private William Jones. And people often say that the Second 24, they're really the Warwickshire's, but they're actually they are, uh, they're, they're not a Welsh regiment but a lot of them are Welsh, hence the unimaginative in the extreme naming. Um, yes, and you're going to be Private William Jones of the 2nd 24th. What with the bloodthirsty yells of the Zulus, the cries of the sick that remained, and the burning thatch falling about our heads, it was sickening. Still, we kept them at bay until 20 out of the 23 sick men were passed into the barricade under the fire of our own men. The other three, which I have every reason to believe must have wandered back into one of the rooms we had cleared, uh, they were men suffering from fever at the time. By this time, the whole of the hospital was in flames and we could not stay in it any longer. We had to make our own escape. Somewhat Victorian sentence construction, some of these quotes. Uh, what he means is that um, they, they, they made the dash from this last room across to the barricade where the main force were. That's a piece of open ground. That's a dangerous time, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it's desperate, in fact. And you're going to be Private Robert Jones, not my brother or, si- or sister, uh, also second 24th. I had three assegai wounds two in the right side and one in the left of my body. We did not know of anyone being in the hospital, only the Zulus, and then after a long time of fighting at the door, we made them retire, and then we made our escape out of the building. Just as I got outside, the roof fell in, a complete mass of flames and fire. I had to cross a space of about 20 or 30 yards from the ruins of the hospital to the leaguered company, where they were keeping the enemy at bay. While I was crossing the front of the square, the bullets were whooshing past me from every direction. So those last desperate minutes, uh, the, 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 patients, uh, the patients and the soldiers are just climbing out the windows and running back across this open pit of thing. Yeah, now yeah. behind them, Private Waters and Beckett, they hid in the wardrobe. This is a surrealistic part of the story, and, and I'm going to be... Lieutenant John Chard, who describes what happened. Uh, and we haven't got the account of the person concerned, so we'll have to use the, the second person. Uh, Chard says, Private Waters, 24th Regiment, told me that he had secreted himself in a cupboard in the room he was defending, and from it shot several Zulus inside the hospital. He was wounded in the arm, and he remained in the cupboard until the heat and smoke were so great that they threatened to suffocate him. Wrapping himself in a cloak or a skirt, or a dress he found in the cupboard, he rushed out into the darkness and made his way into the cookhouse. 
The, the Zulus were occupying this and firing at us from the wall nearest us. It was too late to retreat, so he crept slowly to the fireplace and, standing up in the chimney, blacked his face and hands with a soot. He remained there until the Zulus left. He was very nearly shot in coming out. One of our men at the face raised his uh, rifle to do so at the sight of his black face and strange costume. But Walters cried out just in time to save himself. Now that is what, as an oral historian, I say is an extremely dodgy story. Um, do you believe it? I, I don't know. Um, I believe Chard- that he may have dressed up in a skirt. Yeah, you're thinking... I mean, to be honest, when you're looking at these things, did Chard believe it? And Chard seems to have believed it. I don't know if the exact details are true. But what it, I mean, the excitement of the story, so some of the bits don't hang together. But, no. But it was chaotic, and perhaps the Zulus were distracted, and, and he snuck out there, and all, all this sort of thing. Now, his colleague, Private Beckett, he was badly wounded with the Sakai's while running through the Zulus. He managed to get away and hide himself in the garden ditch, Next day he was found, but he'd almost bled out and he died shortly afterwards. So he nearly made it. That, that's a shame. So of the 11 patients, nine survived the, the, the crossing to the barricade and, and all, all, the, all the able-bodied men made it. Uh, only four defenders were killed in the hospital. And this is the, the scale of casualties. It's very low, isn't it? Uh, one was a, a member of the Natal native contingent. He was, he was helpless. He had a broken leg. Uh, Sergeant Maxfield and Private Jenkins, well, they had an awful fate. And I'm, I'm going to tell that story, should I? Yeah, there's uh, Lieutenant John Child again. Sergeant Maxfield might have been saved, but he was delirious with fever, refused to move and resisted the attempts to move him. He was assegaied before our men's uh, eyes. And that, that was referenced in one of the other quotes that uh, some of them didn't know what they were doing. Uh, A private Cole assigned to the hospital alongside Private Hook he was killed when he ran outside. Yeah, I mentioned that, yeah. That. Another hospital patient killed was Trooper Hunter. And once more, you're going to continue the story as Lieutenant John Chard. Trooper Hunter, Natal Mounted Police, escaping from the hospital, stood still for a moment, hesitating which way to go, dazed by the glare of the burning hospital and the firing that was going on all around. He was assegaied before our eyes. The Zulu who killed him... Uh, immediately afterwards falling so they got their vengeance but the poor son you can imagine bursting out uh, disorientated and just not knowing what to do and in those seconds he's, he's just chopped down now the evacuation of the burning hospital that completes the shortening of the perimeter and lieutenant john chard goes on to say while firing from behind the biscuit boxes dalton who had been using his rifle with deadly effect and by his quickness and coolness had been the means of saving many men's lives was shot through the body I was standing near him at the time and he handed me his rifle so coolly that I had no idea until afterwards of how severely he was wounded. He waited quite quietly for me to take the cartridges cartridges he had left out of his pockets. Wow. Mm. That Dalton is a real hero. Uh, but I like, don't you like the fact that they're not trying to make themselves, they're not bigging themselves up. That All these officers are, 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 are playing tribute to each other's work. I like that. It's, it's quite rare in these circumstances. Now, as night falls, the Zulu attacks continue, and Hook, he joined the defenders on the walls. His day wasn't over that night. It no, was... and I'm going to once more be Private Henry Hook. By this time, it was dark and the hospital was all in flames. But this gave us a splendid light to fight by. I believe it was this light that saved us. We could see them coming. And they could not rush us and take us by surprise from any point. 
They could not get at us, and so they went away and had ten or fifteen minutes of a war dance. This roused them up again, and their excitement was so intense that the ground fairly seemed to shake. Then, when they were goaded to the highest pitch, they would hurl themselves at us again. Now, the cattle car, that had been evacuated well before, well, before uh, 22, and that had gone. And the defenders are now... Pro- where are they? They're, they're just round the storehouse, really, aren't they? They're, they're back to the wall sort of thing. And I'm going to be Lieutenant John Chard. The enemy were now in strong force all round us, and every now and then a confused shout of "Ushufu" from many voices seemed to show that we were going to be to, that, that they were going to attack from one side, and immediately the same thing would happen on the other, leaving, leaving us in doubt as to where they meant to attack. About midnight or a little after, the fire slackened, and after that, although they kept us constantly on the alert by feigning as before to come on at different points, the fire was of a desultory, desultory net character. Our men were careful and only fired when they could see a fair chance. He means of hitting the target. The flames of the burning hospital uh, were now getting low, and as pieces of the roof fell or hitherto unburnt parts of the thatch ignited, the flames would blaze up, illuminating our helmets and faces. A few shots from the Zulus replied to by our men, again silence, broken only by the same things repeatedly happening. Throughout the night, the Zulus kept up a constant assault against the, the British positions. That, 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 that's just amazing. It, the whole thing. They, they do start to slacken, though, don't they? As Chard mentions that, after about midnight, um, they slacken. And when would you say they, they, they almost stop? Well, they, they, they finish at about 2 o'clock in the morning. But nevertheless, the garrison's still under a desultory harassing fire until about 4 in the morning. Now, I'm stunned by the casualties. Just go through them for me and, and stun me again. Well, by that time, the garrison had sustained 14 dead. Two more were mortally wounded. Well, they're dead as well, yeah. Eight more were seriously wounded. Nearly all the defending garrison had some minor wounds, often more cuts than wounds. Yeah, that'd be the guy cut. So yeah. they'd be... I mean, me and you would probably demand immediate hospital treatment, but in the circumstances... Although relatively that. light, they were all totally exhausted after their 10-hour battle wow. under the most severe stress imaginable. So it's not just the wounds. It's just total exhaustion, yeah. Uh, now, they were lucky with ammunition, weren't they? But um, Well, they, they, were, they were beginning to run low. Of 20,000 rounds in reserve at the mission... Only 900 remained. Now, dawn breaks, and, and the garrison could see that the Zulus are gone. That there's nobody in sight, uh, just to deaden the wounded Zulus all around them. Um, and they actually send patrols out to, to just have a look round, recover rifles, look for survivors. Uh, what would they do to the Zulu wounded? Well, they, many of them, they would kill as soon as they find them. And there's some graphic details I'm going to give here from Lieutenant John Chard. He says this. Some of the bullet wounds were very curious. One man's head was split open, exactly as if done with an axe. Another had been hit just between the eyes, a bullet carrying away the whole of the back of his head, leaving his face perfect, as though it were were a, a mask, only disfigured by the small hold made by the bullet passing through. This is the usual things about small entrance, big exit wounds. Uh, um, then, then you think it's all over, and this is amusingly done in the film. Then they think it's all over. They think it's all over. It's not, is it? No. There's a terrible alarm, and I'm going to be uh, charred again. 
At about 7am, a large body of the enemy, I believe the same who had attacked us, they were, they were, yeah, appeared on the hills to the southwest. I thought at the time they were going to attack us, but from what I, I now know from the Zulus and also of the number we put to horde combat, I do not think so. I think they came up on the high ground to observe Lord Chelmsford advance. Uh, from there they could see the, the column long before it came in sight for us, and that's apparently what happened. Yeah. Uh, who else would be tired other than the British defenders? Well, the Zulus, they're also exhausted. You know, let's not forget they'd been on the march for the best part of six days. They'd, they'd done 20 miles up the, the, the day of the attack. First yeah, of, and they had little or no food. They, they'd been up all night. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they retired from the battlefield. Now, around 8 o'clock, there's another alarm. Oh, this, is, this one's all right, though. Yeah, this it? time it was Lord Chelmsford Column, which had marched back from his Landwana. Because they, they'd not been at Essendon, they'd been at, wandering about the hills, and they'd uh, come back through... Wandering Isn't... about the hills. Yeah, come back through Essendon, <laughs> seen the thing, and then made their way back to Rourke's Drift. Uh, so it's all over now. Oh, is it all over by the shouting? Do you it's think? all over, and you're going to be once more Lieutenant John Chard. I like this quote. In wrecking the stores it, <laughs> in my wagon, the Zulus had brought to light a forgotten bottle of beer. A bromhead and I drank it with mutual congratulations on having come safely out of so much danger. I, I love the idea that, oh, I say there's a bottle of beer there. Fancy a drop, bromhead. After the battle, Chard reported some 351 Zulu corpses. That, that's not right, though, is it? No, because others were later found on the side of the Oscarburg Hill. And it's been estimated that at least 500 wounded and captured Zulus might have been massacred as well. Now, we, this is... Uh, one can understand why people at the time did that, but this is, this is a terrible business, and uh, it's the dark side of the British Empire. Well, after seeing the results at Isidadwana, Chelmsford's relief force, they had no mercy, and nor did the, the, the Rorke's Drift defenders, frankly. No. And you're going to be Trooper William Clark of the Natal Mounted Police. Altogether... We buried 375 Zulus and some wounded were thrown into the grave. Seeing the manner in which our wounded had been mutilated after being dragged from the hospital, we were very bitter and did not spare wounded Zulus. And there's a short quote from Lieutenant, uh, your hero, Lieutenant Horace uh, Smith-Dorin. He, he'd been a member of Chelmsford's staff and, and he'd managed to get away, one of the very lucky ones. Uh, and, and he wrote, the day after the battle, they set up an improvised gallows. What did he say? Oh, well, he said it was for hanging Zulus who were supposed to have behaved treacherously. Now, <coughs> 11 Victoria Crosses awarded to the defenders of Rorkstrip. <coughs> and, uh, and that's the most ever received for a single action by one regiment because seven of them were awarded to the 2nd 24th Foot. <coughs> Sorry, I, I'm carried away by the emotion of it all. But in four. addition to that, there were four Distinguished Conduct Medals also awarded. Now, some have been cynical about this and said that the, the, all, the medals were awarded to def, de, deflect attention. Look over here, look over here. Don't look at it in one. Look at Rourke's Drift. Um, but I'm not sure about this. Who, who were they awarded to? Let's have a look at them. Uh, well, I'll be first because one of them is to me in my character of Lieutenant John Chard of the 5th Field Company Royal Engineers. But who got it from B Company 2nd 24th Foot? Just name them for us. So the VCs awarded were to Lieutenant Gonville Bromhead, Corporal William Allen, Private Frederick Hitch, although there is a, a, a later uh, issue because he, he loses or has it stolen uh, whilst in hospital, although there's a suggestion he actually sold it uh, and he had to pay for a replacement. 
Private Alfred Henry Hook, Private Robert Jones, Private William Jones and Private John Williams, all of whom featured quite uh, quite strongly in the podcast. They did. Well, we picked them specially. Uh, the, the Army Medical Department, well, uh, Surgeon Major James Henry Reynolds gets it. And then uh, I think almost everybody's favourite. Who's that? Well, the Commissariat and Transport Department's Acting Assistant Commissary, James great Langley Dalton. And uh, then the second, third, uh, Natal Native Contingent. We missed out his story. That's a shame, but we can't do everything. Who's that? That's Corporal Christian Ferdinand Scheiss. Now... The cynicism um, about uh, the the Rourke Strip can be quite unpleasant, and it's summed up uh, by, uh, by by you acting as uh, Sir Garnet Wolsey. He takes over the Commander-in-Chief post from Lord Chelmsford, although the, Chelmsford actually wins the Zulu War, but then he's replaced by Wolsey. Now, Wolsey is uh, unimpressed by, 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 by the VCs. What does he... What did you? And I'm glad you've chosen to be him, because uh, a lot of Wolsey's... Perf- sort of character is reflected in your own oh you mean so when we went through the notes and decided you'd do it we were deciding not to have that yes I don't want to so be. I'm going to be General Sagarnik <laughs> Walsley <laughs> it is monstrous making heroes of those who shut up in buildings at Rourke's Drift could not bolt and fought like rats for their lives which they could not otherwise save now that's Gary how can you say that <laughs> that I was meant to say well, I think it's appalling. And uh, but, 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 but let's talk. What do we think? What do we think, Gary? Well, um, thanks to Dalton, largely and hard work, the improvised defences were strong enough to hold. Now, the other thing, I mean, these are just points when you're assessing what happened. The defenders were well armed with, with weapon with rifles, and they had enough um, enough enough ammunition. Only just. Um, but the, the Zulus, they had some guns, but ineffectually used, weren't they? Um, also, another part, this is, these are points in favour of what Wolsey says, I suppose. Were, were, were the casualties? Well, for a 12-hour fight, they, they're relatively light, aren't they? Um, but... So, so those points, um, improvised defences were, were, thanks to Dalton, but the improvised defences were good enough. There's no flanks to take. Uh, they're, 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 the defenders are well, better armed than the assailants, and uh, the casualties were light. So why, why, why all these VCs? Yeah, uh, think, let's put some other points. Yeah, but I think you also have got to say that uh, in attacking a fortified position, the, the Zulus had effectively given away any advantage they had by flanking movements. They, yeah. they, they, I mean, it, they played into to the hands of the defenders. So that's another point. But what, So why, why should they get the visit? I well, mean, the what mass, is remarkable? Despite that, the massed attacks by the Zulus would have been absolutely terrifying. I, I, I can't get beyond this because it must have been... I mean, I can understand why Cole lost his nerve and ran out. I think, I think that's the sort of thing we might have done, Gary. Three I think, or four thousand... And and you can talk about military logic all you like about defences and about better weapons, but Jesus, wept, this is appalling. Uh, the other thing is, they had better weapons, but did they have a clear field of fire that allowed them to fire so many rounds a minute? No, I mean, I mean, Martini Henry's an excellent rifle. It single is shot brilliant. Weapon. It's single shot. It's a, we've mentioned it, so they can get close. Yeah. So during the reloading. The Zulus can get closer. 
they knew what had happened at Island Harbour. Yeah. So this is another point. I mean. I mean, people who've been at Isanwana couldn't stand up to it. They, they basically ran, didn't they? Uh, it's only the people who hadn't who stood. And that was a much bigger force, don't forget. Yeah. Uh, well, the, the defending force at, uh, at Isanwana certainly was. Um, the other thing is, people say as if the defenders of Rorkstriff knew they'd be relieved. Did they know they'd be relieved by the arrival of Chelmsford? No, I mean, there was a suggestion earlier, wasn't there, that Chelmsford had suffered the same fate as the troops at Isanwana. So... They may never have been relieved. Uh, there's another thing. What was that about ammunition? What might have happened if Chelmsford hadn't arrived when he did? Well, 900 rounds, was it? They might have run out of ammunition. Well, they would have run out of ammunition. Yeah. So uh, so what do we think in the end? I, th- I think that there's, there are arguments on that bastard, Woolsey, ably played, very, very in character by yourself. So there is a point. Yeah. But, but we think it's overwhelmed. We think... On the whole, there's some smoke and mirrors about what's going on, about why they do it. Because the British Army doesn't always give VCs according to how courageous a fight is, does it? No, I mean, it was a very generous award of decorations, but actually the men were heroes. Uh, As were the Zulus, you know, let's not forget this, whose names we'll never know. I think that's a good point to finish on, that we will never know what those... They were just as courageous, weren't they? Yeah. And... uh, uh, I, yeah, it's 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 an amazing, an amazing. It's a skirmish, really. It's not a battle. Isanwana was a battle, and we lost that. Uh, the British won at uh, Rourke's Drift, but uh, it was a terrible, terrible scene afterwards. It must have been. I can't imagine what it looked like afterwards. All the bodies everywhere. There are actually some pictures on the internet if you if uh, if you want to go and have a look at uh, once Chelmsford's force had arrived. I'll do that. Well, Gary, thanks for joining me in this. And uh, it's a bit of a, a year since our last visit to Isanwana. This is our Isanwana day. Rock's drift day. It's early. It's early. <laughs> Cheers, mate. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH, or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?